0: Welcome to the Free Retiree Show. My name is Lee Michael Murphy. I've been in wealth management for the last 10 years right in the heart of Silicon Valley. People have always asked me, how do I achieve financial independence? And while the financial world wants you to believe it's as simple as investing your money, I'm here to tell you it's a small piece of the puzzle. I've seen four consistent factors in the people that have achieved financial independence. One, they excel in their career. Two, they manage their money properly three they're able to avoid devastating financial mistakes they can see through the bs and lastly they understand they need to learn from the best the people that have achieved success in their career and their finances join us on our journey as we learn how to become free retirees hello hello thank you for tuning in to another episode of the free retiree show I'm your host, Wealth Manager, Lee Michael Murphy. I'm alongside Silicon Valley's favorite attorney, Matthew McElroy. What's going on? Not much, man. We got a great episode lined up for the listeners today. So for today's episode, we're going to be doing a business and thought leader edition. Ladies and gents, we got a good one today. We are ecstatic and we have the unique privilege to be interviewing the former chief marketing officer of realleader.com Nate Johnson. During his tenure, he tripled audience, he doubled revenue. In today's day and age, any company, their ability to market themselves has never been more important. It can be probably the single most important factor in a company's success. And in today's age, COVID-19, marketing and leaving your digital footprint has never been more important. But with so many different ways to market yourself, what's the right way? and what's going to make you stand out in this competitive environment. So Matt, I am super excited that we have this honor to bring on Nate. What do you, what comes to your mind when it comes to marketing? And what do you think the biggest challenges are? I know you work with a lot of companies in the Silicon Valley. What, what do you see?
1: I think there's a, definitely a surplus right now of people trying to use social media and all these things as marketing. And I feel like it's kind of, sometimes, I don't know, I, may, maybe this is just me, but sometimes I feel like it's overwhelming. Like all you're seeing is ads everywhere. And so it's kind of like, I, I feel it's becoming increasingly harder to make yourself stand out. And so finding out what, what that is, that unique thing is, it's going to make you kind of stand out to people. I think that's becoming a harder thing to do. So I'm really interested to hear Nate's take on stuff.
2: Yeah, and I also think- too,
1: I mean, I'm a little scared. Sergio's not here. Yeah, he, <laughs> He carries us through most of these interviews, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're missing one of our main guys, man. So we'll try to get through this one. But I think you and I can handle it. I I have enough faith in us, kind of. Yeah, hopefully. All right. So before we get into it, we had a few questions that came in. We're going to save the questions to the end of the interview. So we will get to those. But if you haven't done so yet, make sure you like us on LinkedIn, share us on Facebook, And if you have any questions, career-related, money-related, legal-related, make sure you send them to ask at thefreeretiree.com. We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, we're going to be here with Nate Johnson. Stay tuned. Welcome back into the Free Retiree Show. We are sitting down with Nate Johnson. Former VP of marketing and VP of growth engagement at PATH. He's been an advisor for a company, Celio and Circle Up. And of course, he has been the CMO at Realtor.com for the past five years. Nate, how are you doing?
2: Doing well, doing well. I mean, I should start, I think, in correcting your pronunciation. Oh,
0: okay. Please. Perhaps, <laughs>
2: perhaps as a marketing, I'm not going to have you repronounce my name. Johnson's pretty straightforward. Realtor. Realtor.com. Not realtor. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that, you know what? That's a Don't very common alone. thing. You're not alone. It's a very yeah, common yeah, that, thing. That's it's that's and it's common. it's actually related to branding and marketing. Like, I would like, say
0: it one more time, Nate.
2: Realtor. Realtor. Like realtor. Realtor Realtor. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. I walked in the door at that job. I didn't know how to pronounce it either. So they had to they had to <laughs> They said, "Here, here's the first thing you need to do: pronounce oh the gosh, name." I, of the company I, I, I had no idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that must have been a little awkward in the interview. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, it's just, I mean, it. So, online real estate is a really interesting space, and and actually, even in just the last five to seven years, has completely exploded as new technologies have come onto the scene. I mean, you've got companies now like Opendoor, Door. They 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 just they're going to go public here pretty shortly you can basically buy and sell a home like from your couch, like as if you were buying toilet paper on Amazon, like, like they've completely disrupted the model. Realtor.com, similar to like Zillow and Trulia, really focused primarily on the home search, right? And so if you're looking to buy a home in Morgan Hill or San Jose or, or wherever, you, you usually start your search on Google mm-hmm. and up come the results. And hopefully your company has the top result because that's what gets the lion's share of the clicks. And then once you get to a site like Realtor, similar to a site like Zillow, you search for the home you want. You can save the home. You can save the search so that you can be alerted if a home comes up for sale. But most importantly for us as a company, we wanted to connect you with a real estate agents. And that's called in the business, that's called a lead, right? Like there are a lot of lead generation type of businesses. And that's how we as realtor.com got paid by successfully connecting a home searcher with an agent. But yeah, in the space, I mean, all of these companies do things that are so similar in a space like that. Like the brand and marketing actually was often the differentiator to get somebody to decide which site they wanted to visit. So maybe they'd seen a realtor.com ad that featured Elizabeth Banks, as a spokesperson, and they liked her from whatever crazy movie she was in and said, well, if she's the spokesperson for realtor.com, it's sort of, I like their ads, their ads make me laugh. Mm-hmm. Maybe they pick us over the competition. But it all, in our space, it all came down to which brand Do you love and which brand do you prefer? Really,
1: Mm -hmm. you know something interesting that I saw some of these companies doing. Like uh, I think it was Redfin, is they're actually like listing some of the houses.
2: Yes. Yep.
1: And and I thought that was kind of cool, but I was like, oh wow, that's gonna like that's just gonna open the door to some really unique, I mean, legal issues for for one, and then just all kinds of like things with just the the sale. Always
2: the lawyer. There he goes, the lawyer again. Legal issues. (laughs) (laughs) no i i think that's right i think what happens is so redfin entered as like a like a brokerage right like they entered as like a colwell banker or a berkshire hathaway home services like they entered they've got their own agents right like they they came in doing the the low cost thing like we'll do a one percent commission well the margins are tight there when you're when you're doing 1% commissions. So you got to figure out how to expand your margins a bit. And and this whole notion of buying and selling homes, like what Open Door is doing, like what Zillow is actually starting to do as well. There's an opportunity to capture more margin. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's not for the faint of heart though, right? I mean, imagine sitting in those boardrooms in the middle of March this year, when... You as a company had made a commitment to buy a bunch of homes, and you're sitting on those homes as we're going into a global <laughs> pandemic, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's a pretty risky proposition, but I think they're banking on the fact that they can do it with enough margin, and I think they're banking on the fact that they can do it with enough frequency also to just sort of keep the volume going. It's fascinating to watch. I think it's going to be really interesting to watch the space over the next five to 10 years.
1: Yeah. oh yeah no, and it will also too like given given like the pandemic and how things are going people are probably going to naturally gravitate to a non-in-person type of thing that's right. it's online and, and that's it just right. I, I, it opens the door for that completely yeah
2: i think it does and i think people have different expectations now of what technology is going to enable them to do whether it's press a button and a car shows up in front of my house and gives me a ride to the airport or like the Amazon example, again, stuff can show up literally like same day. People have this expectation of sort of immediacy and it's driven a lot by mobile and the fact that we're on our phones hours hours and hours every day. It's the first thing we look at in the morning. It's the last thing we look at at night. So that drives a lot of of consumer expectations too. So we shouldn't expect it to be any different in the real estate space. It's just, there's a lot of complexity. There's It's a big dollar amount there are a lot of players in the industry so it's just taking a little bit longer but it's going to get to the same level of immediacy and the pandemic i think sped a lot of that up so all these platforms they now have virtual tours and you can and by virtual tour you literally can like ask somebody to go and tour the property kind of on your behalf or they'll do do a video tour and then live stream it and it's pretty cool. It's it's nice to see the industry catch up a little bit. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, you know what's kind of crazy about it too is that like they're kind of undercutting the local agents in a way mm-hmm. because what's the traditional commission like three percent, right? Yeah, exactly. And they're th- they're taking one percent, so it's like yeah. if people are tight and because of the the pandemic and money's not, of course they want to they want to save money and they want yep. to go with the one percent. So it's, uh, it's gonna be interesting.
2: I think. Look, to be clear, like there are five to six million real estate transactions every year there's a ton of action going around and it's still it's a relatively small number that are going through some of these different models still the vast majority is is kind of going a little bit more of the traditional model where maybe you've bought from an agent before that's who you're going to work with again so the, the, it's kind of like the repeat model a lot of people still get referred to agents like lee's like hey who's a good agent in in morgan hill and you say well i've worked with this guy and and so there's no online service that has actually influenced that but by and large there in some way exactly exactly i think (laughs) it it is still a word of mouth heavy industry for now but that's going to change right it's it's Mm -hmm. and the agents that are able to adapt quickly and try these new technologies and have a good presence on social media you talked about social media overwhelming they're going to win out in the long run it just things evolve you got to stay on top of it. Yeah.
0: So, Nate, we gave a little bit of a background when you first, when we yep. first started the show. But once you give the listeners a rundown of your experience and sure. then what you what you did at Realtor, sure. Yes. <laughs> real, <laughs> yeah. Wait, did you, you, get
1: you
0: get just it.
2: do it wrong again? I, I think I got it right. Right? Did I get it right? It. <laughs> it it right? It. Realtor. Let's think of it as like real, like real tour. I did get that
1: right. I got it right, Matt. It's good. I I I I felt like you threw an A in there.
0: Yeah, I like (laughs) that he,
2: as long as he thinks he's getting it right, we're going to keep rolling. All right, that's good. That's good. (laughs) So so Cliff's Notes version on the background. I'm a Silicon Valley native, born and raised um, in Cupertino. And in fact, one of my first jobs was at Apple Computer, where I actually was in charge of marketing Apple products to college students. And... Which, in, which you think of that now and you're like, well, how hard could that be? Like they, <laughs> those products market themselves, right? Uh-huh. This was back in the, in the dark days when, when Apple was like number five or six in terms of market share. Dell, Gateway, HP, IBM, like they were all just crushing Apple. But we had an interesting value proposition for students. We had a really great student discount. We had basically virus-free software at that point, And we had this magical Trojan horse product called the iPod. And I was very fortunate to be there right when the iPod was kind of coming onto the scene. And so it's a fun time to be at Apple. To be clear, it was very early in my career. I, I'm not dialing in here from my palatial estate on the coast <laughs> overlooking Lake Lake Como or anything like that. But it was it was a good time to be there. I I I know this is a kind of a we're going to be talking about career trajectories. So I should also mention a little bit I did my undergrad at Middlebury College, which is a very small liberal arts school in Vermont. I majored in history, it had nothing to do with business. <laughs> I was studying the Civil War. In fact, I did, my, <laughs> I did my thesis about Civil War reenacting and actually dressed up as a, as a Union soldier and marched with a local regiment on battlefields. Uh, oh, that's uh, amazing. In, yeah, around New England. It was pretty fun. And then after Apple, I decided I, I wanted to get a little bit broader business skill set. So I decided to get my MBA. I and mean, I, I did that at the University of Michigan, which is the finest public institution in all the land, but in Debatable. particular, Debatable. In, particular <laughs> particularly in the state of Michigan. The Listeners,
0: for you guys that don't know, before the show, we found out that... Uh, we we have rival schools. I, I'm a Michigan State fan. I think that's the finest institutional land, yeah. and and Nate is a uh, University of Michigan.
2: Yeah, I mean, in Michigan State's it's, it's it's pretty harmless. I mean, it's kind of cute. And <laughs> it's nice to be nice out there. And you guys have kicked our butts in football for the last like decade here. So yes. I, I I will show some restraint. Um, <laughs> and then fast forwarding to when I got out of business school moved back to Silicon Valley, took a job at Google in the marketing department where I I worked on marketing, Google Maps, Google Earth. I guess claim to fame there was I was on the team that launched public transit on Google Maps, which is kind of interesting. You sort of take it for granted now, but at the time there wasn't a way to access public transit information like bus schedules and subway schedules and that kind of stuff. And so I was on a very small team that actually basically hustled our way through like Chicago, New York and some other major cities across the country to try to get that information on Google Maps and now it's just there which is kind of crazy. But back in the day like that actually was a marketing effort to tell people that it was there and so that was pretty fun. I did a couple of years at Google and then literally moved across the street to what at the time was a very small company called LinkedIn. I was um the first one of the first consumer marketers there. And was really brought in to build up the consumer side of their marketing team. So they they had a pretty established B two B team, like trying to get recruiters on the LinkedIn platform and all of that. But I was really brought in to to, to broaden the the marketing directly to consumers. So that was a wild ride. When I joined, there were two or three hundred employees. By the time I left, it was three thousand. We'd gone public. We we had huge parts of the population were using the site and. So I learned a ton there about how to scale. And actually, apropos of this conversation, I learned a lot there just about your personal and professional branding too, how important it is to have a great presence Mm -hmm. online. Decided at that point to do a startup thing. So I went to Path, reunited with some old colleagues from Apple, which was fun. Path was, unfortunately, was (laughs) a personal social network that was designed for you to connect with close friends and family we limited the number of friends that you could have to first it was 50 and then it was 150. And that was, that was based on basically like brain research that essentially says that humans are incapable of having more than 150 meaningful relationships at any given time. So our thought was, well, why would you ever have a social network that was bigger than that? Because you're not going to know most of the people that you're connected to. It was the other thing that was novel about path is it was, designed exclusively for the phone so it was a mobile only social network and at the time this is back in 2011 2012 that was still pretty novel and still pretty new it was all about the app we didn't have a desktop experience at all so fast forward to who's the guy that's doing the marketing turns out it's pretty hard to actually get uh, to actually grow a private social network where we limit the number of friends that you can have because <laughs> think about how Facebook and LinkedIn and these other networks grow, right? Like yeah. it's through invitations and that kind of stuff. And and it turns out it's hard to promote a feature that's only on the the phone as opposed to available across a lot of other platforms too. I we were able to figure it out. At one point we were top five in the App Store. We we're growing like crazy. We actually really took off in Southeast Asia and and internationally. And at one point in Indonesia, actually specifically in Jakarta, which is one of the largest cities in the world, we had 6 million people using the app on a daily basis, opening the app 50 times a day. It's insane, right? Well, it turns out it's pretty hard to make money on a social network in Indonesia on <laughs> Android. And so it started to kind of get pretty lean. And, and so the decision was made to, to sell the company. We sold the company to a the Facebook of Korea, which is a company called Kakao, and that was sort of the end of that. I was gonna take a break at that point, but Realtor.com came knocking, and I took the job as the chief marketing officer at Realtor.com in 2015. The company at that point was a distant number three behind Zillow and Trulia, was kind of in a state where it really needed to turn itself around, was kind of falling behind Not only in terms of the product experience, but just in general, the revenues were really kind of flatlining and so was the growth. And so I was a big part of really trying to turn that around and make it a much more consumer centric product experience. One that was where we used sort of unique and novel approaches to marketing and social media to try to get the word out there. And it worked. We doubled down on TV advertising. Like I said, we worked with Elizabeth Banks, which was pretty amazing. We went all in on some social networks like Instagram. Turns out that like people love pictures of homes on Instagram. So
0: Mm
2: -hmm. sort of like get into it, right? Like if you've got these beautiful home photos as an asset, like use it. Get people to interact with that stuff. We really, really worked hard to improve the search engine optimization of the site. By the time I left, which was three or four months ago, we can talk about what I've been doing since, but it's not nearly as interesting. <laughs> we had, um, yeah, we'd really, really grown the site. And we were we were no longer number three. We were number two and actually growing faster most months than, than Zillow. Zillow is a beast. Like they're way out in front, right, still. But Realtor is definitely holding its own. And uh, I'm proud to have been a part of that. It was a great, great experience.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, you obviously done a great job because in the prior to five years ago, it wasn't even on my radar. And now I I see it like it's it it is something that it's I think it's almost a household name, to be honest Mm, with you. Yeah, you've done a fantastic job. How did
2: you do that? Yeah, that I think, when I think of marketing, I think of the overall mix and the importance of the overall mix. And when I say marketing mix, it's, it's, it's more than just like a TV ad, right? It's got to be you have to maximize all the different opportunities you you have to get in front of people. There's sort of a famous old adage back in the day when, when Coca-Cola basically said, you know, we want to have a Coke vending machine within arm's length of like every consumer in the country. Right? Like, so they just, they use their vending machines as a way to just sort of get everywhere and be everywhere. You kind of have to think of it almost virtually now, which is where are the eyeballs, where are people spending their time? Right. And they, They, 20 years ago, were spending their time watching TV, right? So to no surprise, like that's where the majority of ad dollars were. Print was like newspapers and magazines. That was where people used to spend a lot of their time. So you had to have a presence there too. Well, now people spend more time on YouTube than they do watching television. Or they're watching both at the same time, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so you 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 have to understand where those eyeballs are and figure out how to get in front of those eyeballs with the right kind of messaging. There was a question and I know you're you're going to save some questions until the end, but one of the questions that came in was about how things changed just in the last few years from a marketing perspective. It's dramatic. I mean, it it, it if you think about 5 years ago maybe a little more than five years ago, a company like Facebook had recently gone public, right? And after the IPO, their stock tanked Mm -hmm. because they had this, what now feels like was an amazing problem. They had a ton of mobile traffic. In fact, the majority of their traffic was mobile, but they had no monetization strategy for mobile. And it's crazy to think that how quickly they were able to pivot that company, to figure out how to monetize the mobile experience, whether it's through ads and retargeting and all these other, now, granted, it feels creepy to the average consumer sometimes.
0: Yes. Right?
2: <laughs> when when you have been on, hopefully, like, I, I used to joke, I was like, people must think I'm a pervert because I just keep <laughs> getting all these American apparel ads. <laughs> but, you know, hey, I like American apparel. <laughs> and and they, would, they these ads would like chase me around the internet, right? We've all had that experience we've all had that feeling too, right so there is you do have to be smart about how you're doing some some of your retargeting but But to the question about what's happened in the last five years, think about how many of these new channels have just exploded in terms of the amount of time people spend on their phones, on their Facebook feed There's entirely new social networks that have popped up that haven't even, that weren't even here two years ago, right? Like TikTok and some of these other things too. So back to how did we do it? We did it because we, we, we knew that we needed to be across a lot of these channels and we did it the old fashioned Silicon way, which was test and iterate, test and iterate. Like marketing is no longer a big bang. Marketing is no longer sit back with your Madison Avenue agency, write them a check for a hundred million dollars and have a brilliant advertising campaign show up. That's going to drive. It's not, Don Draper doesn't exist anymore. Right. It's, it's about how do you, how do you try different things? How do you, how do you have 10 things going? Eight are going to fail, double down on the two that win. That's how you get there. And the companies that do that well and get that, they're the ones that, where you see the brand and the brand is, is, is delightful for you.
1: Yeah, it's a huge, it's a great perspective on that. So kind of the piggyback on that, like w- what do you feel that Realtor.com did that was maybe different or unique to Zillow? Yeah. yeah. What
0: was those two? Like you said, there's those yep. two things. Like, yep. can you give us a little bit on that?
2: Yeah, definitely. So again, because it's not a very differentiated space, right? Like everybody's got the same feed of houses, everybody's got like, it's not like Zillow's got exclusive properties that realtor.com doesn't that like, everybody's all got access to the same feeds, right? So, so what does it come down to? It comes down to things like speed, who's got it first, right? Wow. Comes down to things like accuracy, right? I can't tell you the number of times somebody be like, oh, well I went to Zillow to look at that home and actually it wasn't for sale anymore, it had actually sold that's a frustrating experience, right? Like like, Realtor was very, very focused on making sure that if you told us that you wanted to know that a four bedroom, two bathroom house in San Jose in your price range was up for sale, you wanted to know, we would tell you right away. Like as fast as the data came to us, we would get that data in front of you. So speed was definitely a differentiator. And then the accuracy thing was really key to the brand too. How do you, how do you just be the, the most accurate? Now, for a lot of consumers, they could care less. Like who cares if it's the fastest? Who cares if it's the most accurate? Like for some, it was, they just they just wanted to visit a brand and a product experience that they liked, that they preferred. And so we spent a lot of time on our consumer experience to make sure that we built the features that were going to be most delightful for consumers. So things like the ability to draw to like draw your own map on realtor.com and say, I wanna, I don't wanna see a, I don't wanna be limited to zip codes or that kind of stuff. I literally want to like draw like a circle around the neighborhood and sort of the outlying areas where I'm interested in the house. So being able being able to use that feature for consumers was was important. Another one was I wanna be able to search by school district, right? Like think about how important that part of the decision is for parents. They want to make sure that they're moving into a neighborhood where they've got good schools. So sometimes, you know, people say, "Well, I don't really care what street I'm going to live in, but I need to li- I need to live in this school district." And so, being able to like search by that school district was a was a good feature too. And so, all of that came from really carefully listening to consumers and paying attention to what they what they had to say, and then feeding that back internally to the team jumping up and down and getting them excited and, and realizing that if we built these things, consumers would follow. So keeping, keeping sort of maniacally focused on consumers was really, really critical.
1: In the current state of things, would you say that, or I guess like the better question is, how much would you say of the marketing team is really allocated to social media?
2: Good question. At some level, everybody on the marketing team has to be somewhat allocated to social media. You have you have people that are explicitly like they run the Twitter handle or they they monitor all the comments on YouTube or they post to Instagram. Like a small set of your team is specialized in that, right? But everybody else on the team is programming to social either directly or indirectly. So like your brand advertising team, like they have to think about if we do a a six second version of this 30 second spot we're running on TV. How do we optimize that for Facebook? Right? Like how do we, how do we, at Facebook calls it thumbproofing. It's really kind of a brilliant concept. So thumbproofing is, and actually this is good for personal branding too, as you think about it or your own personal sharing on social networks. When they say thumbproofing, that means that people are just scrolling, right? They're going, going, going with their thumb as they're going up and down the screen. So how do you get them to stop? And, some, and look at your content and how do you thumb proof your content and things like, what does your content look like when the sound is off, for example? How do you use subtitles in your videos to get people to pay attention? Those types of things you actually have to think about. And, and traditionally, advertisers didn't think about that. They were just like, oh, we'll run it on TV and people have the volume up and you don't have to have subtitles. In fact, that makes it look kind of janky. The reality is, like, that's how, you, that's how you set your content apart. So to answer your question, everybody on the team needs to be thinking about it somewhat because that's where the eyeballs are, right? That's where the engagement is. and And the best way to do that is to take a step back, look at your own behavior on these social networks, and really think hard about what causes you to pay attention and what causes you to interact with brands?
1: I got kind of a, a cool question that goes in line with that. So when you guys are going to hire people for the marketing team, yep. how, how much do you look at their social media?
0: Oh, that's a good that, question. That is a really good question.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. So if I was going to, so first of all, I always look at LinkedIn always and because that is somebody's, that is somebody has taken the time to really like control and curate what their professional brand looks like. And so in some ways, like the resume is so obsolete. It's like the business card, right? Like, like you don't need a resume anymore. You don't need a cover letter. You don't need this kind of stuff anymore. Like you you should just be able to go to LinkedIn and say, okay, what has this person done over the last 10 years Um, or five years or whatever it is. So that social network, without question, we look at for every single candidate. In terms of like their Twitter or their Instagram, it kind of depends on the job. If somebody's explicitly raising their hand and saying, I want to come run your Instagram and Twitter accounts, we would probably look at their personal ones, just kind of <laughs> see what their what their taste is. Not, not really to... Not to, not to cast judgment over the content that they've published. People can publish whatever they want to publish. But just to kind of get a feel for, like, do they truly understand the mechanisms of the platform? There we would look at it a little bit. For senior level executives, like, you definitely got to make sure there's nothing hiding out there. <laughs> that, <laughs> that may have happened. <laughs> and i guess i would say the other thing is sometimes people actually put their their twitter handles or their instagram handles like on their on their resumes and on their linkedin profiles and in those in that case they're inviting you to 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 come and take a look that being said all this stuff is public right like so if you tweeted in 2011 about something that Beyonce did or whatever I mean, like, it's up for grabs right? yeah
1: it's out there I mean
2: Trump like that stuff they dig out about Trump that he said 10 years ago or whatever is it's pretty amazing sometimes it's <laughs> like wow like Twitter is actually a really powerful search engine too you can go, you can go yeah. deep. so it's always worth keeping that in mind you know but what
1: about the what about the on the other end like say somebody doesn't have a LinkedIn would that be maybe held against them like hey how could you not have
2: that? I think that's a flag. I think that's a red flag, and not just because you're talking to like the former head of consumer marketing at LinkedIn, where I that's like a personal affront to me that you, know, you didn't actually <laughs> take the time to fill one out. I think it's, I would say for the majority of professions at this point, it's it's your resume, right? Like you you gotta you gotta have one. You gotta be curating it. You gotta be thinking about what it looks like, and you gotta recognize that like people Google your name. And what do you want the first thing to show up to be? Would you rather have it be your LinkedIn or something else, other network that maybe is a little bit more personal? So you got to kind of think about how you you show up. There may be some professions where it's less, less necessary, but for a lot of roles out there, especially here in Silicon Valley, any professional role, we we should expect that you're gonna have a LinkedIn profile.
1: Yeah, I would think if you're if you're serious about really getting the job, especially in the Silicon Valley, it's, and, I
2: mean and, and they're not hard to they're not hard to fill out, right? Like like LinkedIn know. has made it really easy. So you just do a couple of things. Like if you're getting started, like let's say you're a college student, you want to like like what do I put on my LinkedIn profile? Cause all I've done is like be a chapter president of a fraternity or volunteered my time at a local, like that's what you put on your LinkedIn profile, right? You put your internship on your LinkedIn profile. You you, you put accomplishments from you know, what you've been studying on your LinkedIn profile. Maybe you won an award for something that, that you did in the community, like that's what you put on your LinkedIn profile. It doesn't have to be, it shouldn't look like mine or, or you guys, like it should look like a reflection of where you are at that point. Um, you should always have a photograph, the photograph should look professional, right? Like it shouldn't be you at a sorority party. It should be you looking like you would when you go in for a job interview. If you have a photo on LinkedIn, you're like seven times more likely to be clicked on than if you don't. So have a photo so that so that people will actually click on your click on your LinkedIn. And then I think one of the best ways to to leverage a site like LinkedIn is to kind of look, use it as like a research tool. So if there's a job that you're interested in, go and look at profiles that of people who have those job positions and kind of look at their background and say, okay, how can I get from point A to point C or D? What do I need to do in the interim to get there? Maybe I need to take some classes or maybe I need to have a entry-level job here or there. And then emulate their profiles, right? Like, Like there's nothing wrong with like, I'm not going to say plagiarizing, but there's nothing wrong with like taking inspiration from the language that other people use on their profile and applying it to your own. Like it's all about just putting your best professional foot forward.
0: Yeah. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. The path is already there, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. It's the
2: blueprint. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and just remember like the, those LinkedIn guys are super smart. Still are. They were when I was there and they're, even smarter now. They, they got smarter after I left, actually. <laughs> usually, usually what happens. Those guys are so smart when it comes to understanding how search engines work. Because not unlike realtor.com, like the main front door for LinkedIn, one of the main front doors for LinkedIn is like, I do a search on Google for Lee Michael Murphy and I go to your profile, right? That's one of the main front doors. So they really understand how search engines work. And so putting those keywords on your profile, putting your name and all that other stuff into your profile, that that can really drive a lot of people to to visit you.
0: Yeah. So going on this conversation about how do you get noticed in this increasingly competitive online world? Like, I mean, that's that's such a big riddle to solve because I think so many, let's talk about the small companies. They're trying to figure that out. The mom and pops companies with, less than 50 employees. And then there's the big companies. They're trying to figure that riddle out too. Yep. Is it a different riddle for both those? How do you do that? How do you, how do you figure out that riddle? It's
2: a good riddle? question. It's, it's not often when conversations come full circle, but we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier when we were talking about real estate agents and the fact that, yeah, these online things are popping up, but it's still a lot of like who you know and word of mouth and, and have you worked with somebody before? So I, I think that you can't underestimate the power of networking. You can't underestimate the power of who, of who you know and who can sort of advocate on your behalf. And sometimes it's a relatively weak tie that will lead to somebody advocating for you. So let me, let me give you an example, right? Like if you and I are both Michigan State alums and you don't really know me, but I reach out to you through kind of the alumni network, like the chances of you returning my email are actually relatively high because we share, we may not be directly connected, but we, sh- we have a common experience, right? Mm-hmm. This happens like in the military all the time too, right? Like somebody, two two guys were in like completely different platoons, but they were under the same, same line of, this, of the service, or they both served in you know, Afghanistan at the same time. Like, these sort of weak ties are also a type of networking. And so, so it's not just like, who did you physically meet in person, shake their hand and decide to go have a cup of coffee together. That is a strong tie. That one can definitely pay dividends down the road, but there are these weak ties too that we, we, we should also keep in mind. And so, yeah. So how do you stand out? Well, first you got to get noticed, right? And one of the key ways to get noticed is through like a personal connection. How do you get a referral so that your virtual resume just isn't one of a thousand? It's actually at the top. It's one of the top five because somebody said, hey, I've worked with Nate before. He's pretty good. You should take a look at him. Or, hey, I talked to Nate. He and I both went to Michigan State or University of Michigan. And uh, I talked to him and he seems like a good guy. Like you, you should take the time. So I think networking is really, really important. Uh, One of the things that has become increasingly clear to me is, and perhaps this is a little bit controversial when it comes to higher education, all these schools, they're almost all the same, right? Like Michigan, Michigan state, Notre Dame. Ohio State, it's the same curriculum, right? And it's the same, like, they may have different levels of resources. There may be more research dollars, that kind of stuff. But really, like, is it really that different what you learn in the classroom at one school versus the other? Not really. Mm -hmm. The networks are different, though. The networks are, like, a school like University of Michigan has an amazing network in Chicago. I'm not in Chicago. Now, fortunately, University of Michigan has a good network out here, too, uh, in in Silicon Valley, but at some level, like what you're paying for when you go to these schools is the network of alumni. Mm-hmm. So use it, right? So you yeah, know, use that, and that's use the that most. Community.
0: I think that's the most valuable thing I from any of these agree. prestigious schools.
2: I completely agree. Like you can't tell me that the education that you're going to get at a place like Harvard is that much better than at a place like Northwestern or Michigan or any of these schools. But the that alumni network is super tight, right? And they'll mm-hmm. like I. I've said, I'll put my Middlebury network, Middlebury is a tiny school, but I'll put that network up against almost any other alumni network because pound for pound, like if you have a shared experience and you both went to a small school, it's, it's a really, really valuable asset. So anyway, so I, I do think that networking is one of the key ways that, that you stand out. I think a little bit of putting a little bit of time and effort and getting a little bit of sort of research done about the job like ahead of time so that you can demonstrate when you have that conversation that you've thought about the job, that you've thought about how you would do the job, that you've thought about what the competition might be doing. A little bit of, you'd be surprised at how many people put in virtually no effort ahead of time before they either come in for an interview or, like, honestly, like, I would say 20% of candidates, I feel like have done decent research before they come in and interview for a role. And boy, there's a huge difference between somebody that that you feel like has actually tried to understand the space before they walked in the door. One of the questions I like to ask, ask in interviews is like, so what do you read? Like, what's the what did you read this morning online? And that's it. It's totally open-ended question. I want to hear like, are they obsessed with the space? Like, did they go and read like TechCrunch and do they know what's going on with with the industry? And like a little bit of that, I think I think goes a long way. So really being prepared and figuring out a way to kind of demonstrate that i think is is key too and there's lots of novel ways to get noticed also i mean so thinking about these innovative social platforms you you read sometimes about the the interesting things that people do online to kind of stand out or get noticed and you don't want to come across as having to be like hokey or gimmicky but it's you you do have to stand out especially at a larger Especially a larger company. Nice.
1: I, I got kind of like a question that, like, that somewhat piggybacks on that. You have realtors, it's such a crowded field, right? And at, at working at realtor.com, you guys you are exposed to so many realtors. You guys are giving them leads and all that stuff. Yep. What, what do you, what, because it's, I mean, that's, it's, it's a, it's a lot of competition, right? And so, what what do you see that, like, the top realtors are doing that are really, like, just just making them stand out and, and getting, cause, I mean, the main thing with them yeah. is the number of transactions they can close. Yep. So, yep. yeah,
2: the ones that are most successful with platforms like Realtor.com, Zillow, and others are the ones who respond immediately. Like, if you think about a consumer, a consumer is basically seen a home that they're interested in and filled out a form on a site because they want somebody to communicate with them. So, the fact that some realtors don't respond for like days and in fact some don't respond at all is like baffling to me like you know somebody has somebody has raised their hand and says give me information and you're like ah you're good You, you figure it out right the ones who the ones who understand the the sort of urgency are the ones that that are successful now to be clear like we already talked about like in real estate there's a lot look there's a lot of transactions. There's a lot of ways to make money. Like it's not all through online. Like you don't have to be graded online. There are like you could be, I think of you know, my friend here, Andy Wong, who's here in Los Altos. Like he he has basically aligned his brand with the local elementary school. And he doesn't have to worry about online leads because everybody who sends their kids to this elementary school, they all know Andy, right? Yeah. Like, he spends the thousand dollars to sponsor the 5k he spends the thousand dollars to sponsor this or that or the other thing he's working his network he works his network exactly and and he knows that by the way he's a michigan alum so obviously he's brilliant but uh, (laughs) his wife is too his wife is too and they have a daughter there also like they're all in on the michigan thing but anyway he absolutely understands the value of the the in this case it's the parent network it's the community network and uh so there are a lot of ways you can do it, but you got to kind of know what you're good at because there are some agents that are like, look, I don't want to respond to an email form if somebody submits it at 1145 at night. Okay, somebody else will, but
1: mm-hmm. if that's,
2: if like know your lane, right? Like know, know what you're good at and, and know where you should really double down and focus your, your time.
1: I work with a lot of brokers and, and I mean, that's, that's one of the main thing I've noticed yeah. is these guys are Johnny on the spot. You know what I mean? Yep. You send them an email, they'll get a one liner back to you in 10 yep. seconds. And like, yep. uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's one thing that I've seen almost common with every broker or agent that I've worked with.
2: I think they get, they kind of get a bad rap because people are like, ah, oh, what a lifestyle job. Like, oh, you know, they sell a couple of houses. They make so much money. They don't do anything. They don't yeah. do anything. <laughs> they get this commission. It's like, it's a hard job, right? Like they're, they're, they're completely on their own. Yeah. yeah they I mean, spin their wheels
1: all the time for nothing, right? All you the know? time.
2: All the time. Like think of how many like looky loos come and walk through an open house and they're like, oh, that was cool. And then they walk away. Like oh, yeah. the number of leads that come through these lead forms, like maybe one out of ten will be will will actually turn into business. Like they're working hard. They're working hard. And they're and they work weekends and they're always on. Like they're always hustling. It's tough.
0: So Nate, I think a lot of people want to know if you're in that C suite ton of people in Silicon Valley. They all want, they want to get there someday. Yeah. What do you think it was for you that got you there? You overcame the university of Michigan thing. I did.
2: I was able to overcome that. So (laughs) once we, once we put that in the background, we were fine. Well, so I think first I would challenge the, I would, I would encourage people to think hard about if they really want the job because it's a hard job. Being a, being a senior, the more senior you get, the more responsibility you have, the more people you you, like you're accountable for them being able to like send their kids to college and pay their mortgages. You're accountable to a board and public shareholders that have put their faith in you to return profits. You're accountable to your paying customers who, who maybe think you're, you're jacking price on them when you shouldn't be like you have a lot on your plate. And thank God, this is a video podcast. Like they can't see all the gray hairs on my head. Right. (laughs) It's not for the faint of heart and it's not as glamorous as it sounds. So you have to be up for that. Like it's, it's a tough job. That being said, you get there. I think the way I got there was, was through a couple of different things. One was definitely through the breadth of my background. And do, so I've done, I've done marketing with hardware, software, social networks, internet. I've, I've got a broad, I've done it, I've done con- marketing directly to consumers. I've also done more B2B marketing. So that breadth, I think, makes you an attractive candidate as you move to the next thing. And breath has to be intentional. Like you have to think about, well, what skill set do I maybe not have currently that I need to pick up somehow? And so maybe I take a job that I wouldn't normally take, but it's going to challenge me to grow in a particular area, right? When I went to PATH, like I had other options of places that I could have gone. The reason why I went to PATH was because I wanted to, I wanted to focus on mobile apps. I wanted to get really good at mobile because I could see it was coming and I knew that it was going to be really helpful for me in my career at some point down the road to understand how do you build great apps and how do you promote the hell out of them? So surprise, surprise, like my second year I was at Realtor, our iOS app started having some challenges and the CEO basically tapped me and said, can you go basically help turn this thing around? That wasn't in my job description, but it was something that I had, I had picked up over time. So I think breadth is really important. I think, Tenure is important, too, where you don't want to jump around a lot. At the same time, you don't want to get stuck places. So to me, there's definitely a red flag if people have spent like 12 to 18 months at a company and done it sort of a couple times in a row. Because you don't really hit your stride in any job until you're, I think, like 6 to 12 months in. So you really want to have a good, like, good run at companies so that you can demonstrate that you are able to not only do the job that they hired you to do, but also grow into a bigger job at that place. Because a lot of what happens as a senior leader is you're taking on big initiatives that there's no blueprint for, right? So you need to be able to like basically like build the blueprint while you're building the house. And, and so you have to have demonstrated that, I think, as part of your career trajectory The other thing too is take a step back and think through what are all the things that a a C-level executive needs to do, right? So you have to set a vision. You have to get people excited. You You need to be able to manage a huge, sometimes a huge budget. You need to understand how to recruit and grow and keep a team of brilliant people engaged. You need to be able to influence senior people. You need to be able to speak externally. Think of the CEOs and CMOs and chief product officers in your own organization and like jot down a list of all the things they do and then figure out, then look at your own background and say, okay, I've done these three or four things, but of of the 20 things there are to do, these are the next three I should focus on. Going out and, and whether it's, reading things in like the Harvard business review or online subscribe to some interesting blogs that have content in this area, or the best is just like try to get people to go out and have a cup of coffee with you. Right. Like before I took the CMO gig at realtor, I actually went out to coffee with the former CMO of Nintendo, former CMO of LinkedIn, just to kind of like pick their brains and say like, okay, like, should I do this job? Like, do you think I'm ready for it? And, and they, they didn't pull any punches because I knew them all. And, and they, they said, well, hopefully you're up for this, that, and the other thing, and, and, uh, and it worked out. But it is, you have to be somewhat deliberate and thoughtful about how you get to the next level and the next level beyond that.
1: Yeah, I think the, I think the thing I like the most that you said was the, the always keep learning, right? I yep. mean, most people think that when they get to the level you've gotten to, it's like learning stops and you, you've made it in some ways, right? And it's yep. like, no, it's, it's in some ways the learning is just beginning. Cause you got to keep evolving and totally. stay on top. I,
2: I, I couldn't agree more. I've, I, I've never learned more than the last two or three years of my career. Never. Like, and it's, it's because things get complex. You thought you knew everything and you really didn't. And what you learn in books, undergrad or business school, like, yeah, it's kind of useful, but not really. I totally agree. <laughs> like I was a liberal arts undergrad, right? Like I I told you guys, like my thesis was like about civil war reenacting. Like that has nothing to do with marketing real estate, but I'll tell you the things I learned in, in liberal arts that really I use on a daily basis are like research skills, communication skills, skills of persuasion, like all those fo- small groups that we would, talk about literature at a tiny school in Vermont, like those persuasion skills that I gained in that setting, like that's transferable. The fact that I know something was written by Keats versus Yates, that doesn't matter. But the fact that I know how to articulate a point and try to get somebody to think something they didn't previously, that's marketing. So you use that, that kind of stuff down the road.
0: I think it must have been really hilarious for your parents when they're like, All right, he's doing history. Oh totally. man. Oh like, yeah, totally. He's going nowhere. Totally. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now I look at you, and now, yeah. now I mean you see this background that yeah. you have and you're running the Silicon Valley. And it's like, wow, he he really turned it around. <laughs> oh yeah.
2: Like he was going sideways in a hurry. He was my dad. My dad was a he he, he was an undergrad engineer at uh University of Nebraska. So I mean Another football powerhouse, right? Like I was brought up, like when I grew up, we didn't go to church. We just watched Nebraska football on Saturdays. That was what we did. And uh, so he's, he's an engineer. He's a very thoughtful, analytical guy. And I think though, at the same time, I think, he, I think he perhaps maybe envied my non-traditional path that I guess I took. Whereas I would look at his path and be like, God, I wish I would have just done that and that and that. And like, what a great career he had too. The grass is always greener, right? So. Yeah,
1: Lee, if, you, if you've ever listened to any of the, the previous episodes that we've done, Lee is uh, not ever going to let his children do anything but doctor, lawyer, engineer. <laughs> right on. Good work, Lee. I, I, I,
2: anything else is out of the question. Good work. They,
1: they, they call me Started the dream lawyer.
0: killer, Nate. I don't know if that's fair. but <laughs> I
2: love it. I love it. I, I do. I'm, I've been doing alumni interviews for Middlebury for the last 20 years since I graduated. And so I interview a lot of high school seniors here in Silicon Valley. And one of the, if, if, if any of them listen to this, they'll know my trick, but you know, one of the questions I ask all of them is, so do you understand what a liberal arts degree is and how the learning is going to be different than if you were going to go to Berkeley and get your degree in engineering and going back to how prepared are you when you go into these interviews, maybe one in five will be like, no, I, I get it. I've done some research. I, I know that liberal arts is going to be about lots of, discussions and writing and research and, and it's gonna be it's a broader skill set. The vast majority haven't thought about it. So I just immediately ding like those 80%. Like you gotta kind of do a little bit of research before you get there. Um, and uh, I, I think like I said, I think the skill set that you gain in, in a liberal arts, at some level you graduate and you can do you can do everything. But you also can do like nothing at all, right? So it's like you kind, of have, you kind of have the best of both worlds, where you really can kind of kind of create your future. But you have to get people to believe that you can create your future. So, so Lee, like let these let let your kids do let them kind of be art history majors at Pepperdine, and they'll be fine. They'll turn yeah, I could throw
0: and, some and, canned foods out the window at well, them on the sidewalks. I mean, <laughs> to be clear like
2: this is this is the retirement podcast right so like really what you should be doing is just be optimizing for your retirement
1: yes which
2: means wherever they can get a scholarship right because i mean soccer soccer right like,
1: like, soccer
2: <laughs> higher ed man i mean the tuition tuitions are no joke right like and it's oh, God, it's yeah. you talk about well, even you know,
1: younger schools now like the the elementary schools yep. are crazy for private. It's like, whoa, they're like the cost of what colleges used to be.
2: Yep. And and it's and it's only gonna keep going. I mean, I think I like to think that one of one of America's like finest and most valuable exports in a way is is its higher education, right? Like people come to the country to be educated at some of the greatest schools in the in the world. And as long as they keep coming and spending two to three times as much as as the local students do, because international students, they pay through the nose to go to these public schools. As long as they keep coming, you know, it effectively we'll continue to subsidize education for, for everyone. But if we keep making it harder and harder for them to come, or we say, hey, come, but wait, you can't work in the US, we got to send you home. That's that's kind of a whole other ball ballgame too here. But save those pennies for for <laughs> keep them keep them playing on the soccer pitch
0: so yeah, you got you got three daughters
2: right mm-hmm. they're all they're all oldest is 12 correct yeah i'm gonna be working until i'm 100 <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. To be clear yeah this is that i'm like at the midpoint of my career yeah i gotta keep it rolling in yes so, i have three daughters yeah w-
0: what would be your advice to them say they're they're getting it, they're about to start their college careers right yep y- you did a, a non-traditional route Yep, you had great experience. But what would be your advice to your kids as they're about to start that new chapter?
2: I I think it's it's important to really reflect on what you're passionate about, and I think it's important to also seek new opportunities and embrace new opportunities. And so, I I, I would encourage my 12 year old, so she'd be the next one to do it, to to s- search with no constraints, right? Like, sure, she may end up going to the most expensive school, and it's gonna like, it's gonna mean that I'm gonna have to work another 20 years. But I have firm conviction that, that higher education is an important part of one's experience. And as somebody who, who also felt I didn't have any constraints, so I, I went, I went from Silicon Valley to Vermont, right? That's Mm -hmm. like, that's like studying abroad, right? I mean, it's, (laughs) and, and PS, I came back, right? Like I literally, I'm, my kids go to school in the Cupertino School District, which is the same school district I went to. So at some level, I came full circle, but I came back having had a really unique experience of living in New England for, I lived in, in Vermont after I graduated too, uh, of living in New England for almost a decade, right? Like that's, that, that has shaped me in a very positive way, I think. So yeah, I will encourage them to, to think broadly about the whole thing and to not go to Michigan State. <laughs> <laughs> I, have I, said. Said, I have actually said, you can go to any school. <laughs> I, I have said, I, you can go to any school. We will figure out a way to pay for it. You can go to any school except Notre Dame, Ohio State, and that was pretty much it.
1: (laughs) I
0: love it. That's awesome. Well, Nate, thank you for coming on with us, man. You've given us some amazing advice. We could keep talking to you, but we're going to finish up. We got three questions that came in for you. Let's do it. As promised, I will pass these questions along to you. So first one is Wynette from Toronto. Okay. So what advice do you have for students that may want to pursue
2: a career in marketing? Yeah. Yep. Great question. So a couple of thoughts on that. One is increasingly the internship has become pretty important, right? So, so what you do during your summers really can help you build out that resume. So let's say, let's say you can't get a marketing internship at Procter & Gamble for the summer but you could go to your local newspaper and work on their social media channel or go do event marketing for a local restaurant or a local golf course or resort. Marketing, quote unquote, can be defined in a lot of different ways. And so making sure that your summer internship or summer job has an element of marketing in it allows you to, to tell your story, right? And to, to, to say to a, a hiring manager after you graduate, like, I know how to do marketing, I did this, right? I think that's a, that's a key piece. I think that really having the, the right sort of on-campus activities is important too. Because there are marketing elements to all of those campus activities as well, right? Like if you're a member of a certain club or organization, you have to promote and get the word out about your event. And so raise your hand and say, I want to be in charge of marketing for this, marketing for this event or for this, for this activity on campus. That's stuff that you can, you can also put on your resume. I mean, I guess the last thing I would say is leverage your alumni network or even your family networks to meet people who do marketing while you're an undergrad. And it can just be a zoom or a phone call or something like that, just to try to figure out like what their job is. Because when people say, I want to do marketing, that's like, there's like a thousand different job titles just in marketing. Mm -hmm. Right. And, And we already talked about like, it could be a social media manager. It could be an advertising manager. It could be a PR. Like, so at least educate yourself on what these different, types of marketers do because some may be very attractive to you and some may not for example like you may not if you're not a numbers person you may not want to be like a performance marketer focused on google adwords you may rather be doing the instagram channel and that's okay it's both marketing great answer
0: next question is from Ciara neen marzella from san francisco in the five years you've been chief marketing officer, have you seen any drastic changes in your business or the way you interact with clients?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so from a business perspective, we already talked about, right? Like real estate, wow, amazing amount of disruption just in the last five years. The fact that people are able to buy and sell homes from their couch is crazy. That never, like, that was that was a pipe dream, right? So <laughs> because of that, you, you're in a constant state of innovation. now. The other thing that's changed really dramatically about marketing is these social networks and sort of social responsibility for brands is a, is a very sensitive issue, right? Like, does your brand take a side on these big issues in society, Black Lives Matter and some of this other stuff? Like, or, or do you try to go down the middle and be like, we're, we're apolitical? and and the heightened sensitivity to that because of social media brands have always many brands in the past have have either stood for or not stood for certain causes but but the immediacy of these things now is 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 crazy so you know really understanding how that can impact your brand in a moment's notice for good and for bad that's given a that's put a lot of gray hairs on a lot of people's heads. <laughs> mm. And the brands that are really able to navigate that skillfully are pretty well positioned, I think.
0: And to our final question this person is obviously in marketing. It's good. Yeah. It's Nicholas Pino from Canada. How do you create a network effect that drives users to sign
2: up and use your app? Yeah. Wow, you guys are big with the Canadians, huh? I love it. I guess. Yeah, So surprise to me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How's it going? How's it going up there? I don't <laughs> So if we take a step back, like beyond just apps, like growth is obviously where every marketer wants to hang their hat and be like, I was a growth marketer. I was able to do this, that, or the other thing. There are a lot of ways you can grow. And let's take the apps, for example. You can pay money to drive installs no problem. Like Facebook, Apple will happily take your money and get somebody to download your app. That does not mean that that person is going to use that app. It just means that you gave Facebook $5 for the privilege to have somebody install your app. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing to think about is why do you want to grow? Do you want to grow because it's going to drive more revenue? It's going to drive more reviews, there's virality there where it's going to drive other people in because at some level, like an app install is a vanity metric. Like it really doesn't matter. Like what matters is do a lot of people use your app? It doesn't matter that a million people downloaded your app, but 10,000 people used it, right? Yeah. Like that's, so that's important. Like growth, you got to think about growth beyond just that sort of top line and more about the actual usage. How do you grow? My experience has been that really understanding your consumer behavior will help you build sustainable growth. So for example, like how do you build an app that people just rave about that people think is the best app in the category and that they want to tell their friends, you should download this app. One of the mechanisms to do that is to get them to give you a good review on the app store so that when somebody is evaluating which app they should download, yours has 4.8 stars and the competition's has 4.6. Which one are you going to download, right? Mm -hmm. And so in that specific example, how do you figure out which of your app users is most likely to give you a high review? And once they've done that action in your app, prompt them to go out and review your app. That's just a simple hack of how do you drive better word of mouth to get people to choose your app over someone someone else's. I, I like to think of it as you know, be an anthropologist with your product. Get in get into your product, understand the psyche of people that are using it and what's going to make them look good, what's going to make them what, at what point are they going to be happy to share something and and really use that as an opportunity. That type of growth is significantly more sustainable than paid growth. Like you're gonna run yes. out of dollars at some point. Yes. But but if you can get a virtuous cycle going of people who love your product and advocate on your product behalf, that'll just go and go and go. Fantastic answer, man. Wow.
1: I think a good example of that is you, you, like with, with Apple, right? You hear people just rave about Apple, right? Yeah, like they're, totally. they're Apple for life and. Yep.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, Apple and and, Boy, that's a brand that carries the day, right? Like in, yeah. in that category, mm-hmm. in a category, in a category, in a sea of sameness with all the, the HPs and, and IBMs and all those of the world, all exactly the same, they were able to leverage the brand to drive preference and then ultimately loyalty, right? Like that's that's the golden. At the bottom of your marketing funnel, loyalty is absolutely where you wanna be. And that's, that's when you have sustained growth for years and years, decades and decades.
0: Perfect. Perfectly said, man. Thank you for coming on with us, Nate. You've been phenomenal. Even though you're a Michigan University guy, I think I want to have you on again, man. You were killed <laughs> yeah, it you killed it
2: <laughs> why don't we just pivot this to doing like a live stream of the michigan state michigan game in a couple weeks here and then, a little commentary we'll, yeah yeah we'll have like <laughs> we'll have like 10 listeners and they'll be like dude these guys are way off, way off. <laughs> happy to chat happy to chat and and like i said if you want to if you want to chat at any point down the road i am all up for it
0: thank you man thank you guys for tuning in with us you've been listening to the free retiree show so long for now Advisory services offered through Securities America Advisors, a registered investment advisor with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Securities offered through Securities America Incorporated, member FINRA, www.finra.org, SIPC, www.sipc.org, a separate entity. Lee Michael Murphy is licensed with the California Department of Insurance, license 0H18660. The Free Retiree, Securities America Advisors, and Securities america incorporated are separate entities career advisor sergio patterson and attorney matt McElroy are not affiliated with security america companies securities america incorporated security america advisors and its representatives do not provide tax or legal advice therefore it's important to coordinate with your tax or legal advisor regarding your specific situation third party sourced information comments are not verified may not be accurate and are not necessarily representative of all client or audience experience. A portion of this event was paid by a third party. The opinions of career advisor Sergio Patterson do not reflect the opinions of Facebook Incorporated. The
1: opinions of attorney Matt McElroy do not reflect the opinions of Castaneda and company.